0: Everybody loves the touchdown.
1: Goes to the back of the end zone and it is a great touchdown by
0: Holmes. The grand slam.
1: Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again.
0: It's a grand slam! The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio, powered by Postano. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger.
1: Well, thanks for checking out the only show dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us. We're happy to be powered by our friends at Postano. Follow them online at postano.com or on Twitter, At Pistano, we've got a jam-packed show coming up for you this week. Andrew Moscato, he is a filmmaker. He just made the film Doped, the dirty side of sports. Has sports really been cleaned up? We see all these stats in Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA, that the doping has decreased over the last five to ten years. Is that really the case? Because Andrew Moscato says, no, it's not. His documentary is currently airing on Netflix. We'll talk to Andrew Moscato, who's got some really interesting facts and figures on this week's show. Then we've got Breck Basinger. She's an actress who plays a female quarterback on an all-boys football team on the hit Nickelodeon TV show Bella and the Bulldogs. And the best part about this is my daughter Sophia Berger makes her debut as an interviewer on Sports Business Radio. I think you'll enjoy the conversation between Sophia Berger and – breck basinger on this week's show i love the girl power that's involved and it just you know the show has a great message of empowerment and that girls can keep up with the boys and certainly that's what i'm trying to teach my daughter and so proud of her preparation and uh how she conducted the interview so i encourage you to listen to her her conversation with breck basinger on this week's show And then finally, Ben Sutton, who's the chairman emeritus of IMG College, which is the largest collegiate sports marketing company in the United States. Ben is a pro's pro. He's been doing this a long time. He's seen so many things over the course of his career. We'll talk about media rights deals, how they're changing, how digital has affected things. And then what's next for Ben as the chairman emeritus of IMG College? He's a guy who takes a lot of pride in helping entrepreneurs so we'll talk to Ben Sutton on the show this week. I'm joined by our executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you?
2: I'm doing great, and a big shout out and props to Sophia for the interview because she did a great job on that. It's it's hard doing a phone interview because you don't get the feedback from the person on the other end. So she did a real good job with it.
1: Yeah, it is hard doing the phone interview because you don't know when the other person's done talking, and especially <laughs> you know my daughter's ten. So um, this was an interview that was a long time in the making. She likes Bella and the Bulldogs. My daughter plays soccer. She plays golf plays a little bit of tennis. So she's involved in sports and she's watched that show and really looked up to Bella and Breck Basinger because she's a girl quarterback on an old boys football team. So again, it's a, it's an inspiring show for a young girl like myself or like my daughter who plays sports. But um yeah, it's hard doing the phone interview. So, you know, I I watched her do the interview and she prepared all of her questions in advance, and uh, I Griggs. thought she did a good job. And you made it sound uh, awesome as well, tightening it up. So uh, thank Don't you worry. for all your work on that. So, Griggs, the New York Mets have advanced to the World Series for the first time since 2000. I know a lot of people like myself are rooting for the Cubs. You know, the great storyline with the Cubs getting back to the playoffs and potentially going to their first World Series since, I think, 1908 but, you know, the Mets are also a great story, and if you look at the Mets team, uh, Sandy Alderson, who built the Oakland A's teams of the 1980s that were so successful with the Bash brothers, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire, and Tony LaRusso was the manager, he's done that again with the Mets. And, you know, from Jacob deGrom to a guy like Daniel Murphy, who no one heard of three months ago, and now the guy's got... Six games in a row with home runs. I mean, he's to- just torn it up in the playoffs. It's a good story for the Mets to get to the World Series, and obviously, it's a number one market in the United States. So, people in New York and around the country are going to pay attention.
2: Yep, MLB is going to love it too because you got New York, it's a big market, and uh, I, the other series is, is heating up too. As Toronto's kind of coming back a little bit, so it'll be interesting to see how that one ends. But it's just a fun time of year. I love watching baseball in October, and the World Series is always entertaining. There's always some cool storylines. And uh, like this, you know, players coming out of nowhere and all of a sudden they're all-stars hitting home runs every game.
1: <laughs> so many people know that, you know, it's been played out. There was even hashtag Back to the Future this week about how in the movie, you know, it was basically sending people the future. It was October 21st, 2015. Also as part of that movie, there's a sports almanac. And Michael J. Fox's character, Marty McFly, you know, it predicts that the Cubs will win the World Series in, in 2015. Well, because of all the back to the future hype, Nike unveiled Nike mag shoes this week. And I think this is such a cool thing. So if you watch the movie Griggs, which I know you have, you see sure. that his shoes, they're, they basically, they're shoelaces that tie themselves. So they're, you know, shoes, you put them on your feet and they conform to your feet and they tie themselves. And it was me, you know, this was 30 years ago. So it was futuristic. And, um, anyways, Nike will, unveil a limited release of the shoe next spring, and then the proceeds from the sale of those shoes will benefit the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, which I'm so excited about. This is something that's near and dear to me. I've actually had the opportunity to spend several days with Michael J. Fox and his scientists in New York one of my clients and my good friend Brian Grant, who used to play in the NBA, has Parkinson's. So we went and spent some time with Michael J. Fox there a few years ago. And anything that could potentially find a cure for Parkinson's, I'm all in favor of.
2: I agree, and he's not just a great actor, but such a cool guy. I mean, you just uh, after hearing your stories, being with him for that week, uh, you know, just a down-to-earth guy that loves people and and loves his research and loves what what he's doing for Parkinson's. And and what a cool move by Nike! The shoes are awesome too, by the way. They're, I've I've seen a couple pictures come out, and uh, it's a great idea and a great cause. And I hope they sell a ton of them.
1: Well, and you've got to think. So I don't know what the limited release is, whether it's a hundred pairs or a thousand pairs, but you've got to think that those shoes go for like you know minimum ten grand a piece per pop. Yeah. I mean, those are really yeah. incredible one of a kind shoes, and I know there's a lot of collectors out there. Um, And it's going to a great cause. So I think they're going to get a lot of money to uh, hand over to the Michael J. Fox foundation at the end of that uh, run. So that'll be great. What about the crazy ending to the Michigan, Michigan state game last weekend in Ann Arbor, Greg? did you see that?
2: It's what makes football football. I love it, man. That was (laughs) incredible. It's just amazing. I love how one side, you know, Michigan state thinks it's over and all of a sudden, you know, you snap your fingers and it's the other way around. Uh, What a crazy game.
1: Well, did you see the guy, I think he was with, you know, Michigan, University of Michigan TV in Ann Arbor, and he did a live shot with about 10 yeah. seconds to go. And he talks about how, you know, the, the trophy's back in Michigan and it's snap the streak and Jim Harbaugh. Great job. Da, 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 and then the last play happened and, and his whole report was false because Michigan State actually went on to win the
2: game. Yeah, that's why you never, ever quit on a game until that <laughs> thing says 0-0 zero, zero on the clock.
1: Well, I guess you never do a report even with 10 seconds to go if you think no. the game's over because uh, something crazy like that could happen.
2: Yeah, that was crazy, and that, it's fun. I mean, that's what makes especially college football so fun is because every week you just never know what's going to happen. So that was a fun game, and it was a great game the whole game, back and forth, and a uh, great finish.
1: So back to baseball, breaking news, uh, today as we record this edition of Sports Business Radio. Don Mattingly and the Los Angeles Dodgers have parted ways. You know, they were together for five years. A lot of people thought, well, Mattingly's got all this talent there in Los Angeles. They've got a huge payroll. You know, he's got to at least get to the World Series to save his job. He had one year left on his deal. I think it makes sense for both sides. One. You know, Mattingly was tired of one- and two-year contracts. He wanted the Dodgers to commit to him for a longer amount of time, and they wouldn't do that. And then two, if you're Mattingly, you know, the Seattle job, San Diego, Miami, uh, there's a few different jobs that are open, managerial jobs in Major League Baseball. So why not part ways now? You know, he's probably going to be in the mix for one or a few of those. Washington Nationals job is open too. So there's a few of those jobs that are open, and, and you can position yourself for that if you don't think you have a future with the Dodgers. It's going to be really interesting to see who the Dodgers bring in because it's such a high-profile job. And, again, the money, I mean, they've got one of the largest, if not the largest, payrolls in all of baseball. So the pressure is there to win right away.
2: The most interesting part to me is who they're going to pick up next because these big markets, they want to win instantly. They have money for it, and they usually bring in a big name. So it'll be fun to see how they move forward.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. Uh, NBA season is coming up soon. Uh, And Tristan Thompson, the backup power forward for the Cleveland Cavaliers, just signed a five-year, $82 million deal. So he was holding out. Uh, they had a stalemate all summer. His agent is the same agent for LeBron James, so that also factored into things. But Griggs, here's the key piece to remember. The Cleveland Cavaliers now have the highest payroll in the history of the NBA heading into this season. New deals for Kevin Love. New deal for Tristan Thompson now. LeBron has a new deal. So uh, they're all in for bringing the first championship to Cleveland in a long, long time.
2: Yeah, they're trying everything they can to make it happen. And how, how about that? I mean, three years ago, you'd never say Cleveland had the biggest payroll in the NBA ever. I mean, and now all of a sudden they pick up LeBron and Kevin Love stays and boom, all of a sudden they, uh, they're they paying out some money.
1: Well, so, you know, Dan Gilbert, who's the owner, basically, you know, from the people I spoke with, promised LeBron when he came back, like, I will, you know, have an open checkbook, so to speak. There was obviously a number they had in mind with Tristan Thompson. If you think about it, you know he could start on most teams, but he's backup to Kevin Love. There, eighty-two million dollars for your backup power forward. Is there anyone in sports that's a backup that makes that kind of money?
2: Crazy. It's it's crazy. And uh, yeah, I mean when I saw that too, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. The backup guys making eight mil. It's insane.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, we've got a great show, as I said, planned for this week. Andrew Moscato is coming up next. Filmmaker for the movie Doped, The Dirty Side of Sports. It's airing on Netflix. You're listening
0: to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back.
1: Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, but also the founder and CEO of the exclusive Sports PR Summit. The Sports PR Summit is an annual event bringing together senior PR executives from the sports world, national media members, and pro athletes for a full day of panel discussion, featured conversations, and face-to-face networking in New York City. Past speakers have included ESPN reporter Jeremy Schapp, Sports Illustrated executive editor John Wartime, former NFL veterans Tiki Barber and Derek Mason, NBA senior VP of PR, Mike Bass, and other top PR minds from across the sports world. The 2016 Sports PR Summit will take place on Tuesday, May 17th at the Players' Tribune, which is a new digital media platform created and curated by some of the world's top athletes and founded by former Yankees great Derek Jeter. The Sports PR Summit is an invite-only event limited to 125 attendees. If you're a senior sports PR executive and you'd like to be invited to the 2016 Sports PR Summit at the Players' Tribune in New York City, get in touch with us via the Sports PR Summit website at sportsprsummit.com. That's sportsprsummit.com. Follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter and Instagram at sports PR Summit and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash sportsprsummit. I hope to see you at the 2016 Sports PR Summit on May 17th at the Players' Tribune in New York City. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Andrew Moscato. He is the producer and director of the one-hour original documentary, Doped, The Dirty Side of Sport, that airs on premium TV network, Epics. Andrew, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio.
3: Thanks, Brian, for having me.
1: So, Andrew, you've tackled some other topics, making documentaries. Why were you compelled to go in-depth on this topic of doping?
3: Well, I think that um, doping is an issue that I think the casual sports fans think is under control. Uh, ever since the advent of the World Anti-Doping Agency in 2000 and, and the Major League Baseball and NFL testing policies that have come about in the last decade or so, you know, I think the casual fan thinks that these rules uh put in place are working, they're catching the P D cheaters and somehow sport is cleaner than it was in the nineties. And surprisingly, when you look at the data that does exist, um you see that's not really the case.
1: Yeah, you're I haven't seen the entire documentary. I've seen clips, but I know one of the claims that less than one percent of people who are doping are being caught And and you know, my takeaway with your documentary was that there's plenty of guilty parties that aren't being caught, and it's the high-profile cheaters that are being caught, but beneath the surface, there's a lot going on. Is that true?
3: Uh, I I believe so. I mean, if you look at the list of sanctioned athletes, it's not very um, large in terms of numbers of of athletes that are being caught, and there also aren't many Lance Armstrong types on that list. I think it's it's only a few years that we really see the more high-profile PD chief, the Alex Rodriguez's, the Lance Armstrongs that are kind of caught by this whole system. And uh, fortunately, a lot of the people who do end up on that sanctioned list are either athletes who legitimately took a supplement that they didn't know contained a banned substance, or um, athletes who aren't even professional athletes at all. Um, in the film, we highlighted journalist who was researching a story uh, for a magazine and, and ended up on the banned list himself.
1: Wow, that's interesting. So, you know, this is interesting to me because, you know, I'm someone I don't pay very close attention to this, but certainly I follow it. And if I look at just the number of home runs in Major League Baseball, if I look at kind of the numbers from where they were in sports five to ten years ago, it seems from the eyeball test that things have gotten better. But again, your documentary is arguing that that really there's still a lot of dirty cheating going on out there via doping.
3: Well, again, going back to that number, about 1% of tests leading to sanction, I mean, that's basically been the consistent Major League Baseball. That's been consistent in all sports across the board. So when you compare that to anecdotal evidence that 20, 30, or 40% of athletes are engaging in some sort of PD use, uh, it doesn't really add up. So I, I, I you know, maybe the the uh, baseball players in Major League Baseball no longer look like human guinea pigs, Um but I think the way they've been using these drugs uh, has advanced, and drugs are, are definitely a part of sports in the 21st century.
1: Andrew Moscato, the producer and director of the one-hour original documentary, Dope, the Dirty Side of Sports, which airs on Epix TV, is my guest So one of the other things that really jumped out at me in your documentary is that WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, has a budget of $27 million. That doesn't seem like very much if they're tasked with going out and catching the cheaters all over the world.
0: Uh,
3: Right. Uh, It doesn't seem very much to me either. Uh, I think what's been established, and and it's confusing, and I hope the film does a very good job um, of explaining and breaking this all down to the general public, because... It's certainly confusing for me in terms of understanding who's responsible for what. But basically, the World Anti-Doping Agency was created by the IOC. It's partly funded by world governments. And it's supposed to enforce anti-doping rules. It sets a code. Every every few years, they they kind of revise the code. But they set the rules. But it's really up to national anti-doping agencies like the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency in the United States, which is a nonprofit organization, to actually enforce those rules, to go out and do the drug testing. And what I believe my conclusion is from looking at that small budget is that WADA has unintentionally created this plausible deniability for a lot of these countries in the Olympic movement. That a country like Russia can go and say, hey, we care about doping. Look, we pay into the World Anti-Doping Agency every year. But you still hear claims from Russian athletes that there could be, you know, Soviet-style state-sponsored testing in places like Russia. Or you look at the United States where the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency is engaging in this third-party testing in boxing which although they say is Olympic quote-unquote style testing it doesn't seem to add up to what they are doing the Olympics so unfortunately that budget is I think enough to fund the organization and cover their costs but it's not enough really to keep all of these other anti-doping agencies around the world in line.
1: Explain to people Olympic drug testing because I don't think most people understand how invasive it is.
3: Right that was certainly something that surprised me in the making of this film is that if you're an Olympic athlete, you basically have to report your whereabouts 24-7, 365 to your national anti-doping body. So if I'm an athlete competing for the U.S. or I hope to compete for the U.S., I have to tell the U.S. anti-doping agency, again, not a government agency, but a nonprofit organization, if I'm going to be at the movies with my wife, if I'm going to be out to dinner with my friends where I'm training, so that they can come and test me anytime um so again it sounds very good but uh despite this kind of invasion on athletes privacy the the payoff doesn't seem to be there when they're not when like we we're saying before only one percent of tests are leading to some sort of sanction
1: it's really remarkable other than the olympics i mean here in the united states you've got major league baseball the nfl the nba and the nhl there's not as much talk about doping or peds but Who's doing the best job in the United States league wise of catching the cheaters and who needs to do a lot of work in the future?
4: It's really
3: hard to say because one thing that frustrated me, and you know, being that this is a business show, I think a lot of your listeners can understand data and metrics, and there is no data to track prevalence of doping in sport. I was surprised, you know, going to the World Anti Doping Agency looking to see if there's been any studies done to track prevalence of doping in sport and unfortunately all you get is anecdotal evidence it's just different people's opinions telling you how prevalent doping is so it's really impossible to track you know what doping was say in the 90s and what what the levels are at now in any sport whether it's the olympics major league baseball the nfl nba so on and so forth i mean major league baseball definitely has been the most visible uh definitely we see the biogenesis case with Lance Armstrong
4: and kind of
3: making making it seem as though they're they're putting forth the best effort to um, stomp out doping in their sport, but in interviews like the one we have in our film with Ed Dominguez, who was a former Boston PD detective, uh, former Department of Investigations member for Major League Baseball, you know, he claims that even though he was on the Department of Investigations for Major League Baseball that was supposed to go out and investigate, you know, uh, all improprieties in baseball, especially PDUs,
4: he said they were pretty
3: restrained in where they could and could not go. That with Biogenesis, they wanted to look at all anti aging clinics in Florida that they had leads on you know, that were distributing to players. But they were told only to really focus on Alex Rodriguez and the players that were clients of Biogenesis.
1: So I've talked on the, this show's eleven years old, and I've talked to a lot of anti doping experts and. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think if you go back, like the case study for me would be Major League Baseball after they came back from the warp stoppage and you had the home run race with Maguire and Sosa and fans really embraced those two players. They embraced the game. People came back to the ballpark. Baseball was national news. So here's my point. I would argue that these entities and these leagues and these teams, when players are cheating or using performance enhancing drugs and they're putting up remarkable stats that's better for business so why would you want to blow the whistle on something that's helping your business and
3: i think that's that's the the crux of all this is there's definitely if if not a inherent conflict of interest certainly a perceived conflict of interest and in that the people who are supposed to be policing this are also the ones who gain the most uh, financially right and you know one thing that we call for in the film which may seem like a dream, but maybe if there's more public outcry, it could happen. But is that athletes in the Olympic movement who aren't represented by any sort of union play more of a role in creating this anti-doping policy? Because I think the only people who have a true incentive to keep drugs out of sports are athletes who don't use drugs. And yet those athletes in the Olympic movement are treated as if they're, you know, guilty athletes, because there's no way to know who's guilty and who's clean. Nevertheless, I think athletes generally need to have some sort of a say in what's working and what's not, especially if you're asking them to give up some sort of privacy rights like they currently do.
1: Just a few minutes left with Andrew Moscato. He is the producer and director of the one-hour original documentary, Doped, The Dirty Side of Sports, that airs on Epics TV. So other people I've talked with over the years on this show have said that the scientists, the people who are creating – the performance-enhancing drugs are five to ten steps out in front of the anti-doping officials. Do you think that's true? And if it is true, do you think that the uh, enforcement officials will ever catch up to the scientists and the cheaters?
3: Well, that's definitely a common phrase I heard throughout the making of this film, that the dopers are always a step or two ahead. Uh, my problem with that, and it is true, I mean, one a good example is that you find some doping athletes who are using drugs that are still in the trial phase, with pharmaceutical companies, maybe they're buying them illegally online or elsewhere, so they haven't even made it to market, so the anti-doping agencies don't even know to look for this stuff, but I think now they're trying to police that and work with the pharmaceutical companies a little bit better, but my big issue with that claim is it's not entirely accurate. In that the tests that exist now could it could actually catch or i think do a better job of catching um TV users a perfect example is testosterone the the, the primary test is called the te ratio test it's basically a threshold is if you have too much testosterone in your body it's a positive test
2: uh if what happens
3: then is that your that sample is subjected to what's called a cir test which will identify whether testosterone, the testosterone in your body was made by your body or not. And therefore, it's more or less kind of a silver bullet saying, aha, you're using something. My question though, is why isn't that CIR test adopted as the primary test? It seems like everybody from Lance Armstrong to Alice Rodriguez has, has demonstrated the ability to beat the T-Ratio test. Um, and so I don't understand why that CIR test has to be the secondary test. And it's a question that many people, not just me have asked of the anti-doping establishment whether it be at WADA or Major League Baseball. And you don't really get a clear-cut answer. I mean, the only answer I've heard is money, is that the CIR test is too expensive. Um, that seems too convenient, especially when the leagues like to say that they want to protect the integrity of their sport, but then you also see them signing these billion-dollar TV licensing deals. So I don't understand how they can put a price tag on that and not implement tests that currently exist that would do a better job of the tests that they already have.
1: What about human growth hormone? For years, there were no universal conclusive tests for HGH. Do those exist now?
3: Um, they do. Uh, it's definitely, I'm sure some of your listeners know, that it was a point of contention between the NFL and the NFL Players Association. Right. Um, the big issue with HGH, of course, is that the test, although reliable, is very tough to detect. It basically has to be administered soon after the athlete has taken HGH. The the other thing that I was surprised to learn in making this film is HGH is still very unknown. Um, it's a lot of anecdotal evidence of what HGH can do or not. But because it's been so highly regulated, I think more than any other drug that can be used as a quote unquote performance enhancer by the federal government, there's not a lot of studies. There's not a lot. There's varying opinions of how effective it is as a PD. Um, so it's, it's very interesting that everybody is up in arms over HGH. Um, but there's kind of conflicting opinions on what HGH actually does and what the benefit is. But I think one thing that um, there is a consensus on is that the test that does exist uh, isn't that reliable.
1: So people know about Adderall. They know about HGH. They know about steroids, t- t- testosterone, testosterone. What are the, you know, I've heard of the blood oxygen boosters in in cycling. What are, Mm -hmm. I guess, the other forms of cheating that we may not hear about as much but are out there and and people are trying to find tests for?
3: Um, I think you named the big ones, at least the ones that I came across. Um, And that's that's kind of what's funny about all this is I would – if I had to guess, uh, which seems like everybody else in this space is doing – that the athletes that are using those more sophisticated you know, um, trial phase PDs are in the minority. I think most people, if they're trying to get a leg up, are using testosterone, are using EPO, uh, are using Adderall, um, and they just know how to beat the test. Or like in the case of Major League Baseball, a third of the league has a therapeutic use exemption, which is basically a doctor's note, to use Adderall. Um, when you look at the studies of the prevalence of ADHD uh, that you – Adderall is used for, the male population in the U.S. doesn't have, uh, you know, a third of the male population doesn't have ADHD. So it seems a bit like a high number that a third of the league in major league baseball have Adderall. My point is, it's kind of fishy that you get this drug, uh, you have a doctor's note, it's not cheating, but if you use it and you don't have the doctor's note, it is cheating. Uh, and that's kind of a, an example of this gray area where drugs are very much a part of sport, but it's not clear cut of either an athlete's using drugs or they're not.
1: Last question for you. We know that there's so much money involved in sports today, especially for the non-Olympic athletes who are being paid millions of dollars to play their sport. And, you know, I've talked to athletes that have said that, yeah, if I had to make that bet again that I wouldn't get caught for cheating because of the money involved, I would do it again. Did your film go into the long-term Health impact of players who are using performance enhancing drugs and doping at all because, you know, it also looks like people who are using PEDs, they're having a shorter lifespan.
3: No, I mean, the really looks at the business aspects and the kind of uh, success and implementation of these anti-doping rules. I mean, being an only hour, only an hour long show, right. there's only so much we could cover. And I think a lot of that has already been done, uh, you know, bigger, stronger, faster, is a film that comes to mind that looked at the health effects of steroid use uh, that kind of covered the issue. I mean, this film, I think we really wanted to look at who these anti-doping agencies are and what are the rules that Major League Baseball and the NFL implemented and how effective they've been. Because I think that, to me at least as a sports fan has been has always been this gray area. Um, so hopefully the public have a better understanding of that. Um, I mean, when maybe people learn more about the ineffectiveness of the system, that's the next debate is whether prohibition of these drugs is working or not and why we should uh, prohibit these drugs or why we shouldn't. But that's, uh, I think, a completely uh, separate conversation.
1: All right, Andrew Moscato, the producer and director of the one-hour original documentary, Dope, The Dirty Side of Sports. It airs on premium TV network Epics. Andrew, is there any other place where people can catch the film?
3: Uh, for the time being, either Epics or epicsHd.com I think it will be streaming up there, and uh, it will also be streaming online, Amazon, Hulu, uh, later in the year.
1: Excellent. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Very interesting topic. Seems like you did a thorough job. So thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. You're listening to
0: Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR, powered by Postano, after this.
1: It's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pistano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pistano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pastanocom sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O
0: dot com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com.
5: Hello, this is Sophia Berger, and today my guest is Breck Basinger from Bell and the Bulldog. She plays a quarterback on Nickelodeon's hit show, Bell and the Bulldog, which, which airs on Wednesdays. Breck, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Yeah, the, thank you for having me. How did you get the part of Bella? Well, I had done a guest role on another Nickelodeon show called Haunted Hathaways,
6: where I met the two creators of Belle and the Bulldogs. So when I auditioned for Bella, um, I already knew the creators. And I, the audition process, I just went in a couple times. We did a mix and match where I got to meet some of the other people that were up to the different roles. And we kind of just found like a perfect fit in between all the characters.
5: That's cool. so your character Bella reminds me of Monet Davis. What yes.
6: does Bella remind you of? Actually, I use that example of Loni Davis all the time. She's such an inspiration to me. Um, I would say Bella also reminds me of, I mean, that's honestly my go-to all the time. That's, you, you took it right of my, out of my mouth. So who is your
5: favorite athlete?
6: My favorite athlete would have to be probably Russell Wilson. I met him at the Kids' Choice Sports and he was so, so kind and also he's such a great athlete as well. So
5: That's cool. I saw him at Taylor Swift. Did you really? Oh my gosh. He's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. He's cool. So Becky Hammond coaches for the San Antonio Spurs. And Jen Welter coaches the Arizona Cardinals. What do you think about women coaching men's teams?
6: I think that's amazing because it's not the norm. And I think it should become more the norm because, if I mean, if guys can do it, I think girls can do it. And I think them doing that is that's such a great example for young kids, you know, girl young kids that can see they can do anything they want to. So I think it's fantastic.
5: Yeah. Do you think there will ever be a college or pro female quarterback?
6: I absolutely think. There's already so many female kickers now. And so I think the next step is definitely having a female quarterback, and I can't wait to see who it is.
5: Cool. Had you ever played football, or did you have to learn how to play when you got the part of Bella? I didn't actually know how
6: to play before. I like I knew a lot about football, but I didn't know actually how to play. So when I booked the role, they sent me off to quarterback camp, and I kind of learned um, how to act like a quarterback on the field and how to throw. We worked on form, different plays, just the basics of football.
5: So this season, there was a show where Bella meets two-time NFL MVP, Kurt Warner. How fun was that? Oh my gosh, it was so, so
6: much fun. We didn't know who the special guest star was until about two days before filming. And so when I found out it was him, I was super excited. He is truly a legend, and he was so kind. And it was really cool because his son actually got to play a a co-star role in the scene, so that made it even more fun.
5: That sounds really fun. So how long does it take one episode of Bell and the Bulldogs to make it?
6: It takes a total of five days normally to film an episode of Bell and the Bulldogs. On Monday, we do table read and we'll rehearse. On Tuesday and Wednesday, we'll rehearse and do something called a run-through, where we do the whole episode in front of all the producers and writers and network from Nickelodeon, and they can make any changes they want to the episode. And then finally, on Thursday and Friday, we film it. I did not know that. Yeah, it's quite a long process.
5: Yeah. So what do you like doing when you're not playing Bella? When I'm not playing Bella, I love acting.
6: Okay, no, I don't know why I just said that. Obviously, I love acting. I like hiking. That's what I was thinking, but a different word came out of my mouth. I love hiking. I like going to the beach. I just like being outdoors, so anything active and outdoors.
5: (laughs) So what lessons do you hope Bella and the Bulldogs teaches viewers? I hope
6: viewers take away from Bella and the Bulldog uh, a girl empowerment message that shows that girls can do anything they set their mind to. Also, I think it's just in general that if you follow your dreams and work hard enough, you can reach them because Bella never believed in a million years she could actually become the quarterback. And when she does, she's really successful at it and works really hard. So just to show kids that hard work and determination does pay off.
5: Yeah, determination really does pay off. So It does. What was your favorite Nickelodeon show when you were growing up? My favorite Nickelodeon show when I was growing up would probably be Drake and Josh.
6: Um, I don't know. I always found it so funny. And I loved Megan, their little sister, how Megan would always pick on them. Because I had two older brothers. And so it was kind of the opposite with me. Like, they would always torment me a little. And so I loved seeing, like, the younger sister torment two older brothers. I thought that was so funny.
5: So do you have any pets? I do.
6: Right now I have um, two dogs. A snake, and I think that's it at the moment. We go, we go through a lot of pets pretty quickly because my dad's allergic to a lot of animals. So we always have like really unique
5: pets. Wow. I did not know dogs could be allergic to like other animals. Yeah, no, yeah, my dad, he's actually, he's allergic to some dogs, but we found two breeds
6: that he's not allergic to. So that's good. But, um, he's a little, like very allergic to cats and gerbils and guinea pigs. So we have to like, Go to alternative animals, such as, like, a pig
5: and a naked mole rat and a turtle and a hedgehog. Wow. Yeah. Okay, right now, I have two dogs and two pet rats. Two pet rats? Yeah.
6: Oh, nice. So you like that too, then?
5: Yeah. I love all animals.
6: Me too. I love animals so much. I'm an animal lover.
5: So, what are your pet names? Um, well, I have a dog. He's a
6: Yorkie, and his name is Peanut. I have a black lab named Pepper. Our snake is named No Feet. But my brother, he actually, believe it or not, he just got a bulldog and he named it Sage. So now Breck has a Bulldog.
5: I just saw Liar Liar Vampire. Yeah. Yeah, your acting was good.
6: Thank you so much. I have to say I was I was pretty proud of it. We all worked really hard on that movie.
5: Yeah, that was a good movie. Thank you. <laughs> so what do you like doing at the beach when you're outdoors and stuff? What do I like doing at the beach? Like, when you're all outdoors and stuff, what do you like doing? Okay.
6: Yeah, well, I love riding bikes. I like to find different trails and paths that I can ride bikes. Whenever I'm at the beach, I love just, I love going and playing in the waves, like letting them crash on me. Sometimes I'll go surfing when I'm feeling very energetic and want to lose some of my energy because that takes a lot of energy. Um, I also like making twin castles, yeah. Wow.
5: Do you go to school or do you have a tutor?
6: I, I do online school. And um, so we have like a set teacher who helps us do online
5: school. That sounds fun. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So thank you for joining us. Thank, no, thank you so much. Remember, it was really nice talking to you. Okay, thank you. Remember thank us, you. Okay, well, have a
6: great day. I hope I answered all your questions. You um, And thank you so much for watching and supporting the show. I really appreciate it.
5: All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Remember, everyone, watch Fell and the Bulldogs on Nickelodeon. Follow Breck on Twitter at Breck Basinger. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
0: Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR, powered by Postano, after this. The website is SportsBusinessRadio.com.
1: My guest is Ben Sutton. He is the chairman emeritus of IMG College, which is the largest collegiate sports marketing company in the nation. Sutton founded ISP Sports in April of 1992 and grew the business from its first partner in Wake Forest to more than 60 NCAA colleges and conferences. Ben, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio.
4: Delighted to be with you, Brian.
1: So the first place I wanted to start, you've been doing this a long time, obviously. How have multimedia rights deals evolved over the years since you started ISP?
4: Well, you know, it's, it's uh, like like the entire business of college sports. It, is, uh, it has evolved fairly dramatically. When we started our company 23 and a half years ago, um, there were a couple of uh, uh, competitors that had... Uh, you know, kind of large imprints in the space, Learfield and and Host Communications had both been in business for 20 or more years before we even opened our shop. And um, But they were predominantly radio play-by-play companies. And my observation when I was at Wake Forest uh, working there as an associate athletic director was that I didn't understand why companies didn't bundle all their commercial rights together. And so back then, those rights might have consisted primarily of radio play-by-play and a coach's TV show and maybe a game-day uh, program. Al Gore hadn't invented the Internet yet, so we didn't have <laughs> digital rights. And uh, so over the years, you know, the, uh, you know there have been lots of dynamics that have changed in the space. I mean, what we call beachfront inventory today is, is uh, you know, really the uh, use and exploitation uh, of intellectual property, uh, the, the, you know, there's been tremendous evolution in video and scoring equipment. I mean, 23 years ago, nobody had a video board in college sports. And, um, and so that, that changed, uh, you know, fairly dramatically over the years, um, as well as the experiential opportunities. And then, of course, the, you know, this explosion of digital opportunity. Uh, but the one thing I knew then that I, Still maintain today is that you know content is king, and that you know college sports fans have an insatiable appetite for, for content. And really, every time somebody pushes back and says, "Well, my God, there are too many games on TV, or there's too much product on radio, or there's this, or there's that," uh, somebody comes up with another another distribution outlet, and you know, we can't even keep up in terms of the amount of content uh you know, that, that our fans really want. So um I think you'll continue to see really, you know, great growth and evolution in the space. And then there's that give and, give and take between us and the T V company. Uh my friend George Pine used to say we're in the crumbs business. Uh you know, because because our our, our mutual friend John Skipper, uh who's uh really truly one of my great friends in the space at ESPN, I mean, you know, those guys, Randy Freer, uh, et cetera, they're going to take what they take at the conference level. Um, and then basically, uh, the companies like us and Learfield and so forth are, are uh, hopefully being very entrepreneurial and innovative and creating, uh, you know, lots of, of, uh, of other programming and content in the supply chain.
1: So, Ben, you just mentioned content is king. We hear that phrase all the time. In your opinion, what makes for valuable content?
4: Uh, you know, if if people if people listen or if people watch or if they will interact, um, then it then it's valuable. I, I think that there's been um, a, a pretty significant underestimation by a lot of people through the years about the the interest in in the non-marquee sports. So basically. Uh, you know, past football and men's basketball in the college space. You know, what else are, are are people really interested in? Well, you've seen you know the really dynamic explosion of things like you know women's softball and men's baseball. Uh, those two World Series you know draw uh, great ratings for ESPN, and they are you know they're great sports, and uh, and and I think you'll continue to see that evolution. You know, my my hope is is that there will be this kind of continued um, uh, deepening of the relationship between the Olympic movement and college sports, and uh, you know, and that that will help profile some of those sports that maybe haven't had their time in the limelight.
1: We see rights fees continue to skyrocket, as you just mentioned. I mean, I always shake my head whether it's you know pro sports like the NFL or. Collegiate rights deals, they just continue to escalate. Do you think we're going to get to the point where we reach a ceiling? This week, ESPN laid off 300, 350 people. It almost looks like there's a little bit of a market correction going on right now. Do you think we've reached that
4: ceiling, or are they going to continue to escalate? As, as a guy who's been buying rights for, for almost a quarter of a century, I always hope that we've reached a ceiling. So, and I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure my new owners do as well. But, you know, the again the proliferation of content and distribution outlets, it's hard to see how um there isn't some continued escalation in the value of those rights. And uh, you know, the in, in the college space again, since that's kind of my area of expertise, I think, you know, the conferences have become more sophisticated. Uh the schools um you know, by by blending in, particularly in the Power Five conferences, uh, they've become much more sophisticated about the way they approach the rights market. And, um, you know, and so I, I think you'll continue. I don't know that you'll see the kind of dramatic explosion that you saw in the last couple of iterations. You know, people always say to me, well, boy, aren't you troubled by conference realignment or the rights fees going up? I've, I've seen this movie. I've been around the space now for more than three decades. This, this movie happens like every 10 years when television contracts are renegotiated. That's when you have, you know, fairly, uh, nimble conference realignment and you have, you know, rights fees go up. Uh, you I think you're going to see, you know, continue to see that, that, that the value of college sports and right now, especially college football will continue to, to increase at some level. But again, it's hard to see uh how you experience two hundred and fifty to four hundred percent increases in the next iteration like you did this. One.
1: Our guest is Ben Sutton. He's the chairman emeritus of IMG College. Ben, you know, we've talked about radio and TV, but most millennials consume content on their phone or their mobile device. How is the industry going to continue to serve up content in the future to serve this growing audience? Because I mean, gosh! You look into the future, ten, twenty years from now. That's probably going to be how most people are consuming their content.
4: Yeah, it and it, and it really is. And you know, I've got—I mean, I've got great uh, lab models. You know, in my own family, I have a nineteen-year-old uh, freshman in college and a twenty-three-year-old graduate student. There you go. And they don't watch television. I mean, they—I mean, they consume, as you said, everything on their handheld, on their computer, on their iPad. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think that we will, but, you know, having said that, I, I think that presents a challenge, but I also think it presents a tremendous opportunity because the, for me, if relief content is king, then there's a 24-7 programming opportunity for college sports in, in that format. And so I think you'll see, um, you know, continue to see, uh, you know, innovative new, content concepts that are promoted and put forth and um... in response to that because that really is that's where the market's going and those frankly are the people that the fortune thousand uh... sponsors who who are invested deeply in our business Uh, that's who they care about i mean they love eighteen to forty nine but they really love eighteen to thirty four
1: right so focusing on strategic initiatives for img college moving forward where do you think you go? Because again, you've got TV, you've got radio, you've got the increase in you know millennials consuming on digital. Obviously, you mentioned you know you've got scoreboards at the game. What else is part of the strategy moving forward?
4: Well, I, you know, I think one of the things you know it's certainly in the short term for our particular company will be that. Uh, and one of the things I was always attracted to uh, with, with Ari and, and Patrick as we were going through the sale process and negotiating uh, for the sale of IMG and, and our integration is, you know, they they have, you know, all of these other businesses and, and they have a real vision about uh, not having siloed businesses. And so I think you're going to see a cross-pollination of businesses and we had just a, you know a tremendous uh, little study in that here over the last several weeks we took we did a Brad Paisley who is a, a WME uh, talent, and we took him on the road and did pop-up concerts at you know 10 or 12 schools hmm. uh, that were IMG schools around the country and you know just I mean it was just it was really one of the seminal moments in my career to see uh, you know this music business, kind of integrated with this college sports business. So I think you're going to see more and more opportunities, whether that's conferences and speakers on campuses. Uh, you know, for us, you know, we're always looking to plow new ground. So I, I don't think that, you know, you know, we're limiting ourselves if we think of ourselves only as an extension of a university's athletic program. Uh, we want to go deeper, broader, and wider. Um, you know, in the university system because there's just so much untapped potential there still.
1: So we recently interviewed Tucker Kane, the CFO of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He talked to us about their accelerator program that they're doing with RGA. I know that, you know, from what I've read about you, you love coaching young entrepreneurs. You like, uh, you know, helping people advance their careers. We've got a lot of those people who listen to our show. From someone who's started an entire industry like yourself, what advice do you have for someone who's starting out and and maybe doesn't want a job but they want to create their own opportunity like you did?
4: well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I'll actually be with um, a couple of young folks here uh, today and this evening um, you know kind of introducing them around just really more from a coaching perspective than anything else mm-hmm. but they just they're budding young entrepreneurs and I do you know, I, I had a great uh mentor or two along the way, Bill Battle, who founded Collegiate Licensing Company. I mean what is IMG College today is predominantly, you know, uh his his life's work and my life's work combined. And um and so uh it's really great to be with these young folks when they have a great idea or they just have that bug. Um, you know, where they, they really, you know, an itch that they've got to scratch uh, to become an entrepreneur. And, you know, it's, I think that, that, you know, what I've always said to my children is few things in life, you know, inspire passion and joy and create joyful opportunity. Those are the things you ought to pursue. And I really believe that. I mean, I, I think a lot of people you know, have jobs and they're needs to an end. I think they're uh, an even smaller portion of the working population that, you know, actually have a career and they go, boy, this is a, this is a great pathway, and they experience some level of joy from it. Uh, but but there's a group of, you know, 5 or 10% of the people, in my experience, in this great country of ours who breathe really rare air and see themselves, fancy themselves as entrepreneurs, and and like i did for the last 30 years you know woke up every day thinking about it went to bed every night dreaming about it i mean i you know barack obama does not have a better job than i've had
2: i, mean, <laughs>
4: I, I believe i've had the best job you know anywhere in america for the last 30 years and um and so you know i i want for everyone to experience that kind of pure uh personal and professional joy from what they do. And I think building businesses is, you know, frankly one of the most patriotic things that Americans can do. Um, it's what makes our country great. Our democracy is, you know, founded on capitalism. And and so it's, uh, I'm an encourager of people that way, want to spend, um, you know, this next chapter of my life helping people like that and frankly investing in, in those kinds of opportunities Um you know, I'm 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 probably in a dozen different uh, businesses that are are led by people that I just found to be really visionary entrepreneurs who just needed a little coaching and experience. And I was lucky to have Bill Battle and Gene Hooks, a longtime athletic director at at Wake Forest, and my dad, frankly, uh, who I quote him about everything I talk about. Um, you know, to help guide me early in my career. So I'm, I'm hoping I'll have that opportunity going forward myself.
1: Well, that's inspiring. I worked for the Portland Trailblazers for a number of years and uh, I left there almost 18 years ago. And since then, I've started four different companies on my own. So I'm all about being an entrepreneur as well. So I can certainly appreciate that. That is, uh, that is what makes
4: America great.
1: Exactly. So um, let me ask you this. IMG has a large athletic representation business. Do you see colleges eventually paying players? And and what do you think that would do for sports marketing? I mean, we've seen players try and form unions and, um, you know, so much talk about this over the years. I know it's not a, a cut and dry answer, but how do you see that part of this progressing? Because that's going to factor in on on how these rights deals are negotiated, I would imagine, too.
4: Yeah, I, I would tell you, I mean, if somebody had offered me a job coming out of, of uh, high school with a high school diploma and, um, and a particular skill set, whether it's being a great violin player or uh, being a great baseball player, And they had offered me an opportunity to make sixty-five or seventy thousand dollars a year. Um, And at the end of those four years, I got a college degree, and I was surrounded by some of the best teachers and coaches, um, sports medicine professionals in the world. I might not have gone to college. I mean, it's my my point is I I just I don't even understand remotely the logic. that that people think they have behind this notion or concept of paying college student athletes. I really don't. Um, They are uh, more well positioned than any other high school graduates, basically, in the United States of America. There is really, there are only two sports that generate uh, great funding um, for uh, college athletic programs, that's college football and college men's basketball. And I don't believe that the federal government or the NCAA are going to stand idly by and say, well, you can pay college football players, but you can't pay college field hockey players. Right. So it's really, you know, what the argument, you know, that, that the law of unintended consequences on this is really quite severe. If that happens, then you're going to have colleges cut sports left and right. And so because they can't, I mean, this, I mean, there are only 10 or 12 colleges and universities in the country who actually operate their college their sports programs in the black. And so you take my alma mater, Wake Forest, for instance. We build 16 or 17 sports. But if, if you were paying student-athletes across the board, because, you're again, you're not going to be allowed just to pay college football or college men's college basketball players, if you're paying student-athletes, then what are you going to do? Drop your field hockey program that's won three national championships in the last 10 years? Drop your men's soccer program—that's number one in the country today. Drop your men's golf program—that's number one in the country today. I don't think so. And so it's—it's really—it's quite an illogical argument. The—the the, the consideration given for the investment made is already uh, better than any other high school graduate might experience in the country. And—and and again, there's going to be this kind of law of, you know, of unintended consequences that takes place. And you're gonna you're gonna see sports dry up and wither away. Is that good for the Olympic movement? Is that good for colleges and universities? I don't think so. So I'm I'm yeah. I think it's pretty clear where I stand on this particular issue. Um, am I bothered by some things in our space? Sure. Some of the lurid details of scandals and and you know and frankly how much some of our coaches are paid. Yeah, those those kinds of things bother me. I mean, I think frankly that coaches. Bonuses ought to be predicated, but they shouldn't be predicated on wins and losses. Their bonus structure really ought to be predicated on whether you're a graduating kids. Right. The reality is that there's something like 50 or 60% of the kids in college football, and I think it's over 70% of the kids that are on college basketball scholarship on the men's side, are first-generation college students. And that's paradigmically changing. I mean, my, my mother's father and my dad and his brother were the first of their families to ever leave their farms and go to college. And it paradigmically changed the course of history for our family. Sure. And so I feel very strongly that there's a tremendous benefit to getting a college education, college degree. I do think that some of the things that the universities have have adopted, you know, allowing kids to come back to school when those careers end. I think I saw the – I'm on the National Football Foundation – board i think uh college football or pro football careers average something like three years i think basketball is less than three years um so i think it's i think it's important that we honor you know our commitments to these young men and and let them come back and finish their degree if they didn't finish ahead of time because that is what the experience was supposed to be about in the first place
1: just a few more questions with ben sutton the chairman emeritus of img college Ben, what's the biggest threat to college sports today?
4: Uh, You know, there are 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 multiple threats. I mean, but, uh, you know, certainly the potentially corrupting influence, I mean, after I sat here and said, you know, I don't think college football and basketball players or college student-athletes ought to be paid, I would also tell you, you know, money is a corrupting influence. And, um, you know, but money is not the corrupter. I mean, a lot of people in your chair, and I'm not saying you specifically, Brian, but a lot of people that write. I listened to a a, a show this morning early on Sirius uh, Radio, and you know, and, and I won't say who it was because, frankly, one of them is a friend of mine. And but they're talking about, you know, what a, what a corrupter money is. Well, money is not the corrupter. It's when people compromise their integrity and allow the factor of money to become a corrupting uh, influence that, that things go haywire. So, you know, I think it's very important. One of the things I always said to our team for, for these last 23 and a half years, and I did when I worked at Wake Forest uh, before I started my company, you know, our work has meaning and value. Uh, the money, over a half a billion dollars this year, IMG College will pay out to, between our licensing business, our ticketing business, our multimedia business, our seating business. We'll pay out over half a billion dollars this year to uh, college, our, our 225 college and university partners. And most of that money, quite frankly, goes to pay for scholarships for, as we've talked about, lots of student-athletes who, frankly, would have maybe never gone to college, but for uh the fact that they graduated from high school had the right academic profile and a great athletic uh, talent that they could parlay into that scholarship, and and so it's it's really you know I, I, as I said I felt like our work had I always had felt like it had meaning and value, but the one thing that you worry about is that people start making decisions that are just about money instead of about the collegiate student athletic experience and. It's really fun for me to see um, some of the great uh, characters in our space—men and and women of great integrity. People like Bob Bowlesby and John Swafford, you know, Greg Sankey, Jim Delaney. These, you know, these people stepping up and talking about that first, and and making it about that experience, and and creating opportunity uh, for young men and women. And interestingly, I think, you know, maybe three or three, maybe three or four of the, maybe all five of the big five commissioners were college student athletes. In fact, I think they were. And so they understand and appreciate that experience. And so I think that's real I think that's fundamental that, that we keep our values um, intact and manage this kind of uh, newfound wealth that's come into the space in a way Uh, that it's for good, and that it doesn't, as I said, become corrupting.
1: Last question before I let you go. You are Chairman Emeritus of IMG College. You just mentioned that you love mentoring people. And, you know, what's next for you? What's on the horizon for you going forward?
4: Well, it's, uh, you know, I I feel like I've lived a very charmed life. I grew up... um, you know, outside of a little bitty town in eastern North Carolina, went to Wake Forest and Wake Forest Law School. Have um, had really a storied, magical career doing this, and these guys have, you know, they they've been very gracious to me, um, you know, and I've agreed to stay on in this capacity, really just, which is really more like a special advisor and just kind of help them. With relationships and uh, development of new ideas and strategy, I'm actually in L.A. today uh, for some meetings, and and will be with Patrick Weitzel and Jason Loveland and gang at, at the Rose Bowl tonight for the Cal-UCLA game. But um, I do think that uh, you know my mother is uh, she would hate that I'm saying this on air, but she's 70 78 years old, and she has two businesses. My father. Uh, worked with me for the last sixteen or seventeen years he finally retired at the at the uh, uh, age of eighty four years old. Um, I think work is kind of in my genetic makeup and uh, and you know I, I and I think of myself as a serial entrepreneur, so I think I'll always be looking for opportunities and people um, you know to to invest in and grow with and coach and uh, who knows where that leads we'll see.
1: Well, Ben, you certainly have had an amazing career to date. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, getting your thoughts and hearing more about uh, your career, and I thank you for joining
0: us on Sports Business Radio.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ben. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
0: Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR, powered by Postano, after this. So wait, wait.
1: Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, but also the founder and CEO of the exclusive Sports PR Summit. The Sports PR Summit is an annual event bringing together senior PR executives from the sports world, national media members, and pro athletes for a full day of panel discussion, featured conversations, and face-to-face networking in New York City. Past speakers have included ESPN reporter Jeremy Schapp, Sports Illustrated executive editor John Wartime, former NFL veterans Tiki Barber and Derek Mason, NBA Senior VP of PR Mike Bass and other top PR minds from across the sports world. The 2016 Sports PR Summit will take place on Tuesday, May 17th at the Players Tribune, which is a new digital media platform created and curated by some of the world's top athletes and founded by former Yankees great Derek Jeter. The Sports PR Summit is an invite only event limited to 125 attendees. If you're a senior sports PR executive and you'd like to be invited to the 2016 Sports PR Summit at the Players Tribune in New York City, get in touch with us via the Sports PR Summit website at sportsprsummit.com. That's sportsprsummit.com. Follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter and Instagram at Sports PR Summit and on Facebook at Facebook.com backslash Sports PR Summit. I hope to see you at the 2016 Sports PR Summit on May 17th at the Players' Tribune in New York City. This is Sports Business Radio. We are back to wrap up this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us this week. Thank you to Andrew Moscato, the filmmaker who created Doped, the Dirty Side of Sports. Fascinating conversation with him. You can find that documentary on Netflix. Thanks so much to Breck Basinger, actress, on Nickelodeon's hit TV show, Bella and the Bulldogs. She plays an inspiring character, a female quarterback on an all-boys football team. Catch Bella and the Bulldogs on Nickelodeon. Thanks to Brack for being so generous with my daughter and patient with her during her first interview for Sports Business Radio. So proud of my daughter, Sophia, this week and always. Uh, Ben Sutton, the chairman emeritus of IMG College. Really good to talk to him. I had not spoken with him before. Interesting look at the future of media rights, the college landscape, and also Ben's future plans. So thanks to Ben for joining us on Sports Business Radio. I'm excited to announce that the 2016 Sports PR Summit presented by the Players' Tribune will take place on Tuesday, May 17th at the Players' Tribune headquarters in New York City to receive an invitation to this exclusive event for 125 senior sports PR executives from across the sports world. Get in touch with us at sportsprsummit.com. You can email me at brian at com. That's Brian with an I, brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. Very excited about our partnership with the Players' Tribune. We've had... Recent uh, executives from the Pittsburgh Steelers, San Francisco 49ers, and Adidas sign up this week. So some great senior executives are going to be in attendance at our event on May 17th. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, and Doug Zanger. Thanks to our friends at Pistano for powering Sports Business Radio. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Just go to iTunes. Type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top one hundred business news podcasts. You can always find our show on the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps. We just launched a channel on Audio Boom. So go to audioboom.com or go to the Audio Boom app. And type in sports business radio. And of course, you can always find us at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. Our Twitter feed was named to the top 100 sports business must follows on Twitter by Forbes for 2014. So follow us on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.
0: <laughs> Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill
1: Hancock. He's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Folster. He's the the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com. And subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And stay connected to the business side of sports. Only with Sports Business Radio.